Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. As we continue to make our way through 1 Corinthians, we are in chapter 4 this morning, verses 6 through 13. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. And if you would like to follow along, you have the sermon outline here in your handout. You can make notes or whatever would be helpful to you there as well. Join me once again in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come now to your word and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through it. Lord, we desire to hear your truth. We desire to know it and to follow it. We pray for your spirit's work that we might do that and do it well for your glory, for the honor, for the sake of Christ. Oh Lord, we pray that you would bring these things about in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Hear now the word of God written for you and for me today. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what have you that you have not that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast? as if you had not received it. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor working with our, with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed. We entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, beloved in Christ Jesus, it's vitally important that Christ's under shepherds are found faithful in doctrine, in life, and in service, in ministry. It is also vital that all of God's people are committed to be found faithful in life and service as well. Faithfulness is what the Apostle Paul was keenly mindful of, to points in which he was also willing and ready to defend himself when that was necessary. And sadly, that became necessary in a place and among a people that it shouldn't have been necessary, quite frankly, 
within the pale of the Corinthian church. And yet Paul was ready. He was ready to correct. He was ready to guide. He was ready to teach them in the midst of their doubts and their accusations. And he did so with confidence because he knew that he and Apollos had been faithful servants and stewards of Christ. Paul had no doubts, though there were contrary claims by some in the body. He he knew that faithfulness is a requirement of good stewardship. It is a high standard that such a servant has to keep for his master, Jesus Christ. So Paul knew that he and Apollos were redeemed sinners capable of erring. And yet Paul knew also that he must strive to keep that standard, to be found good and faithful by his Lord. And though some folk in the congregation majored in being highly critical of Paul, their judgmental jabs and their darts didn't achieve the desired rise or departure from Paul that they were hoping for. In fact, Paul wasn't impressed, right? And importantly, he wasn't bothered by their words, nor was he interested in submitting to their demands. For the same focus that was true for Paul must be true for us. God's evaluation and judgment of our thoughts, of our words, and of our actions must be big in our hearts and minds, while man's opinions must remain quite small. Their fiery darts just ping off of our armor. They are like water running off a duck's back, not taking up any of our mental or our spiritual real estate. And we know why this is healthy for the Christian and why this must be true. God was Paul's judge. He was the Corinthians' judge. And he is our judge. It is a good thing to be in the hands of the living God and to be under his discipline and judgment. And after self-examination, Paul had a clear conscience that he was being faithful in service to Christ. And further, he exhorted the saints to be careful and wise in their judgments, knowing that the coming return of Christ and his revealing light would be upon them. And all would be exposed in that day. And those found in Christ will receive divine commendation and divine praise. And so as Paul prepares to address matters of discipline that are needed in the Corinthian church, he continues to teach the saints and us today by pointing out how he used himself and Apollos as an illustration so that we would learn how not to think of man more highly than we ought. And let's consider his words regarding our need to walk within what is written in verse 6. Being mindful of the consequences of pride in verses 7 and 8. And understanding the costs of being fools for Christ in verses 9 through 13. Look at what he says there in 6a. He says, now these things, brethren, I figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. Now, kids, the Corinthian church, as you think about coloring books, and as you think about how you're supposed to color in those books, 
very uh, reasonably said that the Corinthian church was coloring outside the lines regarding how they looked at other people within the church. They were making people really big in their eyes, assessing their value according to the wrong standards, according to the world's standards. Beloved, the way that we view ourselves will affect and guide the way that we treat others and are treated by others. If we have such an inflated esteem for ourselves and others, we will have a low esteem for Christ and his servants. We recognize that the Apostle Paul was, has just given a defense about his faithfulness. He has just spoken to how people should judge things and how they should look at others. And so Paul is saying here that this is why he used himself and Apollos as examples and as, a, as an illustration. So that he would show and teach us how God truly looks at them. And therefore also to give us a framework and boundaries by which to think about and to assess men rightly. So that we would keep our colors within the lines. And so that we would stay on the runway as we are speeding forward to take off. And this is why Paul spilled much ink in explaining in different ways how the saints ought to look at them. They weren't the super elites, Paul and Apollos weren't. They weren't the super elites that they were exalted to be. But they were ministers and servants and stewards of Christ. They were but planters and waterers and builders under the great master builder of the church. And now where do these boundaries keep us? If these boundaries are important, if staying within what is written is important, where do these boundaries keep us? They keep us within the bounds of Scripture and ways in which God sees things revealed therein. Only in the Scriptures do we have the clear and deep answers from God. His truth in the Scriptures is all that we need for life and godliness. And therefore, His view, His prescription... For how we need, uh, for how we ought to think, is always right. His view is what ought to matter to us, and what we need to apply, providing guardrails on how we need to live. But see a key word that Paul uses here in 6a. He said these things so that the Corinthians would note, learn to stay within what is written. My friends, knowledge predicates success in carrying out duty. Knowledge predicates success in carrying out duty. Their knowledge and practice passed muster in the school of the world. You could see it in how they lived and how they taught themselves to esteem one teacher over another. That was clear in Corinth. But this knowledge and living didn't pass muster in the school of Christ. They needed to unlearn their own ways of self-love and esteem and replace that with, God way, with God's ways, with their esteeming Christ more and more, seeing things through God's lenses. Oh, how this applies to us today, doesn't it? For there is much that the light of Christ shows us that we need to unlearn in the crevices of our own hearts where pride has taught us some very dark lessons. 
And there is much that we need to learn as we walk within the bounds of what is written, within the bounds of what God has revealed to us and calls us to. So once again, such high esteem for men wasn't only a problem in Corinth. This sickness was widespread, and it was also true for the saints in Rome. Paul addressed them in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, when he said this, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Hear that. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Really reversing, again, reorienting what had happened and what had settled in in Rome, what had settled in in Corinth, and needed to change. Remember also what Paul warned Timothy about in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 2a, when he said, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. And what was one of those factors? What was one of the pieces of those perilous times? He says in verse 2, For men will be lovers of themselves. Vanity, oh vanity, would be a stinky mess in the world and sadly in the church. And if such inflated esteem and self-love is the sickness, Staying within the line, seeing ourselves rightly through the lens of Scripture is the cure, Paul said. Look at verse 6b, back in 1 Corinthians 4. That none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. My friends, taking this action and recalibrating our view within the bounds of Scripture takes a thorough act to arrogance. It takes a thorough act arrogance. It takes an axe to taking sides with some against others. It takes an axe to division and contention, and it fosters unity. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 24 and 25. He says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. If we are standing on the rock, which is Christ, if we are grounded in his very word, if we are walking within what is written, and we are seeing things through what is written and what the Lord reveals to us, this is the path that we must follow that keeps all the other crud out that guards us from such things, that keeps our focuses where they need to be, that helps us to rightly assess our fellow man and even ourselves. And Paul says that we need to have such godly wisdom and walk this way for good reason. Notice what he says in verses 7 and 8. For pride can make us think some twisted and funky things. Look at 7a. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Paul is in essence asking, who do you think you are? 
What do you think you truly have? And is your assessment of yourself right in any sense of the word? Of course, the conclusion is, no, it's not right. You're skewed. You're way off. C.H. Spurgeon rightly describes the first question here, for who makes you differ from another? He describes that first question as a dagger put to the throat of our boasting. And the second question, like a sword thrust through the heart of our self-exaltation and pride. For we all know, my friends, including the ministers who headed up the factions in the Corinthian church, we all know we, it can be, we can be easily tempted to take a self-inventory and believe that we have an extra measure, maybe even a few extra measures of distinguishing marks that set us a cut above the rest making us so unique and different in the body. There were some in Corinth who thought this based on self-determination, as well as probably and possibly from kudos and praise from others. But either way, a grand problem of pride, and we see this in the world, is that all such distinguishing marks are just things that are part of me. That's the message of the world. Look at me and stand in awe, right? Look at me and stand in awe. And therefore, in, such, in, in the face of such a statement, here comes the sword. What, did you, what do you have that you did not receive? The knee-jerk reaction in response to this question would be to say, well, let me count the ways that, and I'll show you. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll put the list together. And what do we come up with? We're confronted with a clear answer that cuts to the heart. We've got nothing. We've got nothing that we haven't received from God. Importantly. And Paul brings more sting with the sword in the second half of verse 7. When he says, now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You know, we really need to see and have pressed in that we can't glory in the things that we've received as if they're our own without wronging God. Any such boasting is sin. Our only boast is in the Lord and what He has done. It can never be in ourselves. And yet what have the Corinthians boast been? Paul lays out some of their claims with a flare of sarcasm here. And he is being very clearly sarcastic. Look at verse 8. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, he says. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. Now, considering all these statements, though, and their pride, the, the Corinthians had deceived themselves into thinking that they had reached that ultimate status. They were living the dream all on their own. Look at the glory of Almighty Man and what we have done. They were living the dream apart from Paul, apart from Apollos, apart from Cephas, truly apart from Christ, although some would claim to be of Christ. Paul even bitingly says, 
Man, I wish that were true. We'd love to rule with you. Wow. And yet, what is the real life and cost of living as a fool for Christ? Paul makes these types of statements to grab their attention. He makes these statements to get their attention to say, Hey, wake up. You think you're on cloud nine. You think you're all that in a bag of chips based on what you've accomplished and how you've made things to be in the church and how you're looking at yourself and other people, how you're putting us wrongly on other pedestals. This is not the cause. This is not the true and the real life of discipleship. The real life of living as a fool for Christ. Because remember, that's his message leading into this. That's what his consistent message has been. Be fools to the world. To be a fool for Christ. Paul and Apollos were living the fool for Christ's life. And it wasn't a glorious life. It was glorious spiritually. It was glorious in all the right ways, but not according to man. Their life demonstrated it. Look at verse 9. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. See how the cost of discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't promise and give his followers glamour and rank and high esteem in the eyes of the world. In fact, the opposite is true. The Christian life is one filled with sacrifices, challenges, suffering, and persecution. And even the leaders of Christ's church, the apostles, saw that in many intense ways. And yet they didn't abandon that life. They didn't decide that they would go with the rest and color outside the lines, that they would go beyond what is written, that they would change their view and their outlook of man and themselves to appease the world and themselves, to make themselves feel better. No, they walked the narrow road, the painful road, the hard road, the road of ridicule, the road of persecution. God has shown Paul and the apostles to be men who weren't full by the world's standards. If you consider his sarcastic statements in contrast here. They weren't full according to the world's standards, but were empty by those standards. And they were scorned by the world. They weren't first like kings somehow ruling greatly but were last, like men condemned by Caesar to die. In their sufferings, they had been made spectacles, Paul said. Literally, my friends, the Greek word here means that they had been made a public show in theater to the world. Like the Christians made to be bloody spectacles in the Roman amphitheaters, tortured, eaten by beasts, and slain. Again, essential reorientation going on here. The high life is being dismissed and the real suffering for Christ being revealed. Even in the example and the testimony of their own lives. 
these men who these factions had put on pedestals, you would think they were riding in on chariots and prancing around in robes with rings and crowns on their heads. But wait a minute. No, they were homeless. They were beaten. They were made as spectacles to the world. Ouch, Corinthians. You got it all wrong. You're in a different and a wrong place in how you view the church and service to Christ. Things need to change. And interestingly, Paul notes that their suffering was witnessed by both angels and men. And that's an interesting statement, isn't it? Sure, you could understand. Witnessed by other men, witnessed and spectacles to the world, but witnessed by angels and men created order. I believe Calvin rightly points out that angels here is likely referring to fallen angels as it would seem absurd to be referred to being a spectacle to the holy angels. But why did they? Why did the great apostles of Christ's church subject themselves to this? Notice how Paul lays out the contrast between status claims of the Corinthians and the true cost of discipleship. He says in 10a, we are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. Again, sarcasm. In other words, by the grace and work of God, the apostles practice what they preach to Corinth. They practice what they preach. They had the mindset that fueled the walk because they gave all glory to Christ. They loved Christ and would do whatever was needed and necessary to serve him faithfully in the midst of a corrupt and sinful dark world, preserving the purity and unity of the church. They had been changed by the gospel and had zeal to follow God's call. They were willing to lay down their lives to serve Christ and His people and to serve them well as fools in the world's eyes for Christ's sake. Knowing what would come against them, having such conviction and status. They were fools for Christ that the honor of the gospel would be displayed, but the Corinthians saw themselves as wise in Christ as the heathens around them praised them for the wisdom that they saw and proclaimed. And in verse 10b, Paul points to their weakness in being dishonored, whereas the Corinthians were so strong and distinguished, they thought. And yet Paul knew where his true strength and honor lay. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, we read this. God's words to Paul in the midst of his struggle. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, notice, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There was the heart and the fashion of Paul, God-given, spirit-wrought. Or scarcely would a man go through such things if it wasn't spirit-wrought, if it wasn't for the sake of Christ. But yet Paul had that commitment to his Lord. He would do anything for Christ's sake. All that his Lord required of him. And so whereas the Corinthians were living the high life, so to speak, what did they need to know about how Paul and Apollos lived? Verse 11 teaches us that they were hungry and thirsty. They were poorly clothed. They were beaten and homeless. My friends, the apostles walked in the steps of their Savior. They took up their cross and followed Christ. Isaiah and Isaiah 53 foretold of Christ being bruised and beaten for our sins. In Luke 9:58, Jesus told the man, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And yet, what are Christians called to do in response to the sufferings that we encounter? Paul gives us their example to follow. Look at verses 12 and 13. And we labor working with our own hands. They were committed, right? They were committed to doing this, to making sure that their needs were taken care of without being burdened to others. Being reviled, notice, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Love and see how reviling is countered by blessing and persecution by endurance. Not flight or fleeing, but by endurance. Defamation with encouragement. Never forget Jesus' words to his disciples in Luke 21, verses 18 through 15, when he says this. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed by even parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Notice verse 17. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. Again, the cost of being a follower of Christ. This is the truth of the matter. This is the curtains being pulled back. This is the light being shown. This is the real life. Not some life that we want to make it to be so that we can be comfortable and happy and satisfied and praised by the world. In every way, through the grace of God and His suffering servants, the counterfeit strength and riches and rule that the world esteems is exposed for what it is. And the true grace-filled and given strength 
the true riches of the grace of Christ and the rule that is Christ alone and his blessings and work are shown and made manifest. I'll leave you with this. In light of this world that teaches it's okay to color outside the lines in doctrine and life, in fact, it's better and even best if you do, they would say. In light of that worldly mindset creeping into the church, we all must learn and be solidly resolved to staying within the lines, to walking within the bounds of what is written. Refusing to go outside of it. Not to experiment. Not to test the greener grass. Not to be lured outside the door, for it is a trap. The Bible is the revealed word of the living God. It is our rule for faith and obedience. And therefore, we need not and must not go further, especially in determining what godly wisdom isn't and, and is and how we must live. But also, we must be mindful of the pitfalls of pride. When Captain Meat Planet arises in our hearts, we are easily deceived into exchanging godly wisdom for foolishness. We don't have what we have. We aren't who we are because of us, beloved. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, boast in ourselves, and expect to be right with God. All that we have and all that we are, we have received from God, period. And it's a wonderful thing that we can't boast in ourselves. It's a wonderful thing that we can and we must praise and give glory to God for all that He has given and done. Holy day of glory. But also see the fullness, riches, and rule of self and how the stark contrast with the way of Christ and the true cost of discipleship expose the insanity of sinful mindsets because they are truly insane. How our eyes are open to the real sacrifices of the Christian life. As well as we are convicted and guided and encouraged in following Paul and Apollos' example as they walk and walked in hardship and suffering. The shift from pride to humility is very hard. This is what the Corinthians needed to do. This was Paul's reorientation and recalibration of their minds and their hearts back to Christ and away from self. But oh, how self wants to hang on to the death grip. And oh, how self wants to pipe up in sometimes the most unexpected ways and situations and say, here I am. Put me back on the throne now. That's where I rightfully belong, right? Oh. Christ is king, and he is head of his church. We must put and mortify our sinful selfishness. We must recognize that hard journey and that shift in, in getting the selfishness and the selfish thoughts and the selfish activities out of our lives, out of the church, and to be truly humble servants of Christ. But may Christ grant us 
much grace to do these things. As he works in our hearts, as he blesses us, as he convinces us, as his revealing light shines and tells us and shows us what needs to be done, that we would be acting rightly, individually, and as families, and as the church, beloved, that we would be doing these things rightly and for his glory. Praise God for his word. Praise God for his grace. Let's pray together.